If you want to open your Bibles to Second Peter. Peter's uh, quite an individual, really. Most of us can uh, understand Peter's personality and struggles a little bit better than some of the other biblical characters. We can identify with him in quite a strong way when we see his life of following hard after God, it seems, in one moment, and then falling on his face in humiliation and struggle the next. He... I mean, just in Matthew 16, you can consider when Jesus says, I believe you guys looked at it in Luke's gospel, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You have the words of life. Where else would we go? A few verses later in Matthew 16, Jesus is talking about going to the cross. And Peter says, don't talk about that, Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, the high and the low, we know that experientially in our own life. So for me, because of that, I find lots of benefit from um, Peter. I can identify with him. I mean, Luke chapter 5, when Peter's called from fishing to be, an, to be a disciple, Luke 5, 11, it says he left everything to follow Jesus. In John chapter 21, after Peter has spent three years day after day with Jesus Christ, after Jesus has gone to the cross, after Peter has been told by Jesus that Satan has asked to sift him like wheat and that he will deny him before the cock crows, and he did deny him, and he looked in the face of Christ after that. He watched him die. He has seen him at least on two, if not three occasions, since he had risen from the dead. And yet still in John chapter 21, after leaving everything to follow him in Luke chapter 5, Peter says, I'm going fishing. Back to the old way of life, turning his back on everything. Forgetting everything, it seems, that he had seen day after day. And then Jesus comes and tracks him down in great mercy and love again. And we have the great interchange of Simon Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus giving Peter that command. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. And we have lots of examples all through the book of Acts. I shouldn't list them out here or we really will be here all night. Let's just look at one example of him feeding his sheep. Second Peter um, chapter 1. I mean, we know the fam- we're familiar with the famous sermons that Peter preached. Uh, he wrote one letter already, and here he's writing another letter. We know it's a second letter, not just because whoever wrote your Bible wrote it was the second letter, but if you look over into chapter 3, we don't always have this benefit with biblical literature. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you. So we know that uh, those who were putting the canon together in the early days got this one right. Verse 1 of Second Peter, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. 
For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, Godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. And he, in fact, made that happen. I mean, we have evidence that Peter made these things made it possible for them to remember and recall these things, even for us, not just the original recipients. I mean, Peter is writing in, in the first letter. If you're familiar with it at all, you may remember Peter lists this long list of people by and um, specifies them by geographical location. People from Cappadocia and Bithynia and all these different areas, many of whom were there when he preached at Pentecost on that great sermon we have recorded in Acts chapter two. But here. He doesn't specify anyone from any particular geographical place, but he says to those who have received a faith of the same kind of ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's it. Who is he writing to? Believers, people who have received a precious faith. I mean, we've been talking some about Bible translations this week, and I don't want to say anything bad about Bible translations. I like the New American Standard, which is, what um, you guys are using here primarily, uh, but the New King James, which I preach out of in my home church, says here, like precious faith. And that's one of those just old ways of capturing the idea that Peter is, is uh, talking about here. A faith of the same kind of ours. It's like precious faith. That's the particular that Peter mentions here. That's the only distinguishing mark that he makes. If you have faith received from God, This letter is applicable for you. So read it, heed it, apply it, live upon it if you have this faith. It's the great beginning of the Christian life. It's the all-important foundation. It's terribly crucial that we have this like precious faith that Peter is referring to. If we don't get this very initial point in verse 1 right, if we don't have that as the foundation then we can just forget everything else in the letter. Not that it's worthless, but that it will not build upon a foundation properly. It would be like building a house out of Legos. 
because we didn't lay a foundation of steel and concrete in order to build a structure that would be lasting and would be useful. That precious faith that is obtained by the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ. This is how we all begin in the Christian life. By God giving us these twin gifts of faith and repentance when he changes our heart. I mean, Second Peter is really unlike any other book in the Bible in that verse 1 is objective truth. Verse 2 through the end of the book is subjective or the application of living in light of that truth. We have this truth stated. God gives faith to his people. And verse 2 and following is application. We're familiar with Paul. His letters are split very much right down the middle. Doctrine, then application. Even Peter's first letter, he goes back and forth. Lots of gospel, first 12 verses, no commands, just basking in the glory of God, then applying it, then back to the realities of the gospel, then back to applying it. He's back and forth in First Peter. But here he says, I'm writing to all of you who have been given faith. Now live like this. Be careful about this. Watch out for this. Pay close attention to that. It's the entirety of the letter. He gives this objective truth and he expects us to live in light of it. Peter is concerned with the life of a Christian. Why would he not be concerned? In looking at his own life, he knows the struggles and he does very well in pointing out to us where we ought to take great care and be of concern. His letter was written for that purpose, to aid us in applying our faith in life. So what I want to do tonight is not look at the rest of the letter, but just to look at some of the application that Peter makes. The benefits of the gospel initially. He, he just starts off right there in verse 2. Grace and peace multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I mean, grace and peace. We throw these words around like crazy. In conversation with other believers, in prayer, in discussions, in thoughts, in song. But really, it's a summary of all that we're granted here in the gospel. I mean, that's what the New Testament writers are saying when they say grace and peace to you. Gospel greetings. You who have received grace from on high. You who are living in peace not only with God, but with man. That constant, unchanging, undeserved favor that we receive from God as his dearly beloved children. And peace. Reconciliation, if you will, from being enemies with God to being his friends, from being rebels of his to being his dearly loved children. The enmity being removed between us as the, crea- as the created and between God who created us. The benefits, these benefits, grace and peace, they are yours and they are measureless, multiplied to you, multiplied in this way, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. If the benefits of the gospel are multiplied to us in this way, then there's something that we can do to exponentially, as it were, multiply these benefits even more. They are multiplied in the knowledge of God. So what ought we to do? Get to know God and getting to know God, grace abounds. We know that experientially as we get to know him, we love him, we obey him and grace abounds in our life. I mean, we can summarize Peter's emphasis here of this first section, if not the entire letter, concerning the Christian life in two ways. Knowing him, if we continue reading in verse 3, not only grace and peace multiplied to you in the knowledge of 
our, of God and Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You hear knowledge, knowledge, by his knowledge. Peter is concerned about us knowing, pardon, by our knowledge. Peter is concerned with our knowing him and with our becoming like him. Everything pertaining to life. What is eternal life? To know God and his son, Jesus Christ. He's given us everything by his divine power pertaining to life and godliness. Becoming conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Being made like him. That's what Peter's concerned about. This is the summary of the Christian life that we have from Peter. Knowing him and becoming like him. Peter is listing here expectations of believers. Stating mere faith is not enough. If faith was enough, he would stop after verse 1. You've received faith, just like mine. And it's come by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And stop. But he doesn't. There's expectation. There will continue. I mean, that is the foundation. And it's an incredible foundation. And it's an amazing reality. If we were going to build a huge skyscraper here, out in the parking lot there, it would take an amazing foundation. I mean, and we could say that is an amazing piece of work. The amount of steel, the amount of time, all of the busted rod that would go into it, the poured concrete, it would be amazing. It would take a long time and it would be quite a work. But it's nothing in comparison to once the building was finished. And then the building was finished and you're not paying close attention to that rebar that's down in the middle of the concrete that you can't see anymore. The faith is not enough. We are to respond to the faith. It is a guarantee that we will respond to it. And that's what Peter is concerned about. This faith must be increased, strengthened, lived upon by knowing him, by making him known, by becoming made like him. Now, this sounds like if you have verses running through your head like I would at this point. Knowing God, isn't that an impossible expectation? Who has known the mind of God? No one understands. No one seeks God. God is high and holy and dwells in the heavenlies. And I mean, how are you going to get to know him? He dwells in unapproachable light. Who's going to come into unapproachable light? Sure, to know God, to be like Jesus Christ, it's an absolute unattainable feat for us as mere men. But we're not left to ourselves to fulfill this expectation. We can't leave verse 1. We can't forget verse 1. You have received a faith of the same kind as ours. You've been given all that you need for life and godliness. Verse 3. We have obtained this faith from God. And with this faith comes him giving us absolutely everything that we need. For life and godliness, for every situation, for every circumstance, no matter how good, bad, and different, it doesn't matter. All things, everything that you need to know him, you've been given, if you have been given faith. Everything you need to be conformed to the image of God, you have it. There's no better situation. There's no extra book, extra biblical concepts. There's no new teaching, new methods. You've been given everything by his divine power in the gospel why? Because you've been given God himself. It's the spirit who's regenerated your heart, who is living inside of you. So as a result, 
we have everything that we need. The results of receiving faith from God are astonishing if we consider them in the way that Peter spells it out for us here. I mean, think for a moment with me how different our understanding or definition of the Christian life is from Peter's. Just in the few verses that we have seen. I mean, today, this week already, since Sunday. Consider this. If you are a believer and God has given you everything pertaining to life and godliness, everything, not one thing lacking, how have you tapped into that in the past few days concerning you knowing God and being made like him? To what degree have you delved into the depths of the gospel and swam there, coming up only for air every now and then in order that you might be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ by gazing at his glory? I mean, in in your own estimation, in your own experience, does your life in Jesus Christ possess this kind of quality, these qualities that Peter lists out here? Multiplied graces, a multiplied peace, a life that gives evidence that you've been freely given all that you need for life and godliness, that you've been called by the glory of God, by the virtue of God, that you've been given exceedingly great and precious promises to live upon, that you've been made a partaker of the divine nature, that you've been made an escaper of the corruption that's in the world by lust. That's quite a description of the Christian that Peter gives here. Is Peter just giving this because he's some super apostle or super Christian? No. Remember how he started it all. You've received a faith that's just like mine. What was different about Peter? He saw Jesus with his own eyes. Would that help you? No. That's not going to benefit you at all. I mean, didn't Jesus himself say it would be advantageous for us for him to go away and send his spirit? We live in the greatest age possible. When Paul preached on Mars Hill, what he said that day in Acts 17 is true for us. Where we live, the boundaries of our habitation, the times in which we live, it's best for us in order that we might seek God and grope for him in order that we might find him. God has orchestrated everything in our lives, given us everything that we need in order that we might be transformed into the image of Jesus today. Now, it's it's as if Peter's writing to me, to you. Does it not seem that way? I mean, these truths, he's writing with this purpose to comfort the believers, to encourage them and strengthen them. I mean, it's encouraging to read that God has given this amazing foundation of faith that he's giving me multiplied graces and peace in him. He's given me exceedingly great promises to live on day after day. He's given me everything I need to know him, which is life now and life eternal. He's given me everything I need to be transformed into the image of Jesus, which, according to Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, is God's will for us, our sanctification. I mean, how could we ask for more? I mean, where would we go? God hasn't even overdone it. He hasn't given us More than what we need, really. He's given us exactly what we need because of the expectations. It seems like we've been given so much more and we're just taking little bits and pieces of it. That's not the plan of God. God has given us exactly what we need to take full, to drink from it fully. It's not as if we're dying of thirst and he opens up a fire hydrant and we get a little bit just to live and then there's all this waste God has opened up the gospel, the banquet of our salvation, and it will never, ever be finished. But it's perfect for us. It's not sipping out of a fire hydrant, trying not to get our lips blown off by the pressure that's coming out. 
But it's perfectly satisfying to our soul. Continually. It will never, ever run dry. Through these promises of God, we are sanctified. Verse 4, by these, by his glory and his excellencies, granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them, by the promises, by living on them, leaning on them, believing them, hoping in them, we may become partakers of the divine nature. We're transformed into the image of Jesus, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. Now, we could go on and on with the promises of God, but I'm going to trust that you know some of those great promises and not take up your time with those. And might even suggest that as homework, you go home and look for great promises, a promise that you can cling to and hope in and believe. I mean, the work that God has wrought in the believer by means of the gospel is an incredible work. It's incredible. I'm completely removing the old heart and putting in a brand new one. It's not like he comes in the way we do sometimes when we want to redo. Let's say we were going to redo the sanctuary. And uh, not that it needs redoing. I'm not suggesting anything. Um, It's just a good example. I hope it's a good example. (laughs) You want to, to redo it. But you don't have enough money to completely revamp it. So you just do a little bit at a time. This year you're going to change the color of the pews. Next year you change the color of the carpet and the color of the walls. Slowly but surely. That's not the way God does. He removes the entire heart of stone. He doesn't leave parts of it stony. He gives us a heart of flesh. Pliable, conformable. He changes it completely. Now it does as that heart flows out into our life and affects every little tributary as it were. Of our lives, it does. Sanctification happens over time. But God changes us immediately when He justifies us, removing the heart of stone, giving us this, these twin gifts of faith and repentance in regeneration. And included with this gift is all we need to respond to Him in trust and faith and repentance. And all we need to appropriate these gifts, to use them, to apply them. Namely, what Peter says here. Faith, faith to believe him, to trust him, to hope in him, to lean on him, to learn from him, to know him, to do all of his good pleasure, to act according to his word, to obey him, to love him, and to add to that faith, which is, brings us to verse 5. Now for this very reason, what very reason? So that you may be transformed into the image of God and escape the corruption that's in the world. Applying all diligence in your faith, supply, furnish, add moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. Add them to it. Yes, you're saved by faith alone. But there's this amazing expectation for believers that once you're saved by faith, you add to that faith or you appropriate it. You apply it and live upon it. You use it and it's active in your life. I mean, the first thing he mentions here, moral excellence, that's the idea. It's an active faith. You're living on it. You're not just setting it aside, but you're earnest in living upon all that God is for you in Jesus Christ. And notice how you're doing it. With diligence. It's not lackadaisical. It's not a passive approach to Christianity. It's not a sit back and relax and let God do 
what he wills, when he wants kind of attitude. It's not a fatalistically sovereign view of sanctification, saying, well, God will transform me when he gets ready. That's not what Peter says. He says, give all diligence, applying all diligence with everything in you. It's taking a great interest in, a great contribution is being given here. That's the idea. Now think back with me to verse 3. His divine power has given you all you need for life and godliness. You give all diligence. Okay? What's really required of you? Nothing except that that's already been given. You're not having to think up something or work up something. God's already given you everything that you need. You're simply tapping into all that God has given you already and applying all diligence in adding to this faith, building upon it, causing it to flesh out in your life. Now, it's, remember, it's, it's important for us to remember this verse 1. Um, Second Peter could be dangerous for us because many times we read over introductions of letters and skip over a few things. But this, the fact that he's writing to people who have received faith is important. Because if we don't notice that faith here is the foundation, then it would be easy for us to miss that important point and get to verse 5 and assume that this would be the gospel. Add to your life moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. Just add to your life these things. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is not an exhortation to live a certain type of life. The gospel is not an exhortation to put these kinds of things into practice after affirming some abstract belief in God and then adding to our life these lists of qualities. That's a travesty of the gospel. We must avoid that. As we look at verses 5 through 9 here, as we attempt to add these things to our lives and work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we cannot forget the foundation of God's work in us by His Spirit that He's accomplished through the work of His Son, through His life and death and His continued work, sitting at the Father's right hand on our behalf. With that said, there may not be a more important word in the scriptures in our day and time to local New Testament churches than this one from Peter. Apply all diligence. There's this tendency in us type, reformed, sovereignty emphasizing, God-centered folks to sit back and to be lazy, to be passive type people. It's amazing really these two great areas of extreme. Um, so many times when we look at the scriptures, there's a ditch on one side and a ditch on the other. And our tendency is to be in one ditch or the other. And then when we come out of that ditch, rather than staying in the middle of the path, we tend to overcorrect and be in the other ditch. Most of us are haunted by these two great extremes. On the one hand, we're tempted to save ourselves or desire to save ourselves by something that we can do. And then we're tempted, on the other hand, to be sanctified or assume that we can be sanctified by not doing anything. The problem is we can't do anything to save ourselves, yet we have these commands to repent and believe the gospel. And when we are saved, we have a 
Bible full of commands that we're expected to obey, that we must obey, that Jesus says if we don't obey them, we're a liar. And we haven't really a relationship with him. So don't fall into the ditch after having been saved by God and looking to God alone for your salvation and realizing you had nothing to do with it, that he saved you out of his own good will, out of love from eternity past. He drew you with cords of kindness and he saved you. He showed you your sin, but he showed you the amazing reality of Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. Do not fall into the temptation then of sitting back and thinking, wow, I'll be sanctified the same way. No, you won't. It's an impossibility. And Peter says here, apply all diligence. Are your lives, are our lives characterized by diligence? Diligence in leaning, actively leaning on Jesus, hoping in God, living by faith. And adding to our faith the particulars that are listed here for us. With all diligence. God has given you all that you need for life and godliness by his divine power. The fact that he's given you all that, now you supply all of that. Work up all of that. Use it. Tap into it. Make use of all that he's given you. With all diligence, now add Flesh out this faith. Live upon it. He's giving you himself living inside of you. Live like it. These qualities produce in us what we need so much in our Christian lives. Balance. We're given this solid foundation of faith. And then we have the expectation for it to be active and vigorous. With knowledge and understanding, discipline and enduring that will produce godliness and kindness and love and charity. Nothing is lacking here. How is that possible? Well, because his divine power has given us all that we need to flesh this out, to make it happen, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. If any ingredient is missing, if we focus on one Rather than the other, then we end up being cause-driven or principle-governed or puffed up in knowledge. We're too heavy in one area and we're, we're like a wheel that's um, perfectly round and the spokes are all the same size and it's well-balanced. It's like taking three or four of those spokes out and duct-taping them together and sticking it back in there. The wheel will not roll in perfect balance that way because it won't be weighted correctly. It will have this warp. And our life will be that way if we aren't careful to add to our faith these seven qualities, not focusing on one, but being careful with each of the particulars, realizing that God's given us all that we need to make this happen. And he goes on here, um, I'll rush along now, he goes on and gives some, some positive encouragements for us to pay close attention to this and some negative Warnings for us to pay attention with. Let's pick up in verse 8. For if these qualities, seven qualities, are yours, and if they are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is an encouragement. You want to be useless? 
I don't. You want to be unfruitful in the true knowledge of Jesus Christ? No desire in me for that whatsoever. If you're a child of God, I assume you don't have that desire anywhere in you. If these qualities are yours and if they're increasing, they're not going to increase unless we're giving all diligence continually toward building them up in us, appropriating the faith that God has given us. Verse 9, he who lacks these qualities, if you don't have these seven qualities, you're blind, you're short-sighted, you've forgotten your purification from your former sins. You see what's going on here? If you lack these qualities, you're spiritually blind, as it were. There's a haze there. You forgot where you came from, and you have no idea where you're going. You're just aimlessly on this journey that is called the Christian life. You don't know where you came from. You don't know where you're going. How in the world are you going to apply any diligence in getting there? Anyone who is wondering or sojourning with no idea of the direction that they're headed and no idea from where they've come, no one is going to work with any effort whatsoever on getting anywhere because they're going nowhere. What's the hurry? You're not leaving anything, a life of sin. You're not headed to anything. The glory of basking in the glory of God in front of him face to face with Jesus Christ. You're completely clueless of that. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. Okay, Peter, you've already said be diligent. I mean, we are lazy Americans. Be done with the diligence, please. But he's not that way. Be all the more diligent. I mean, you see, Peter, think of Peter's life. You know, he knows experientially the danger of letting the guard down, of being lax, of being passive. He knows it from his own heart time and time again. Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as you practice, as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what Peter just said here? We have the opportunity to travel through this journey of life living by faith in Christ and not stumbling. We have the opportunity of living knowing that there will be this abundant entrance into the eternal kingdom of God at the end of the journey. If we're diligent, he says here, diligent about being certain concerning his calling and choosing you. How does that happen? He's just spelled it out for us. I mean, we live in in a culture where assurance of salvation is a terribly difficult thing to get a grasp on. I mean, if you haven't struggled with your assurance, then you probably should. Um, It's a common thing. Not that you should should have doubts continuously, but you ought to really consider where you stand with the Lord. It's it's a a mind-boggling soul gripping thing really when you're really concerned but assurance is offered that the reason that so many people in our culture are struggling with assurance is because we're not diligent because we're spiritually lazy we're passive in our pursuit of christ 
I mean, there is a danger of being on, on the other side of those who um, never doubt and just assuming based on something that they've done and then falsely claiming the promises of God that they're okay and having no doubt whatsoever. I mean, obviously, there's warnings there, too. That's not what Peter is suggesting here. Peter is suggesting that if we put our hand to the plow and we continue plowing and looking forward and do not look back like Jesus gave the example in Luke 9:62, if a disciple, if a disciple puts his hand to the plow and looks back, he's not worthy to be my disciple. If we do not look back and keep our hands at the plow and keep on being diligent, adding to our faith these things, making our calling and election sure by following hard after Jesus Christ, then we have this guarantee of not stumbling. Then we have this guarantee of the eternal entrance into the kingdom of God guaranteed to be abundantly supplied to us when we arrive there. It's a wonderful encouragement from Peter. It's very difficult if we don't realize everything that Peter's saying here. God has given us faith, but there is this expectation that we live like we've been given that faith. We could actually go elsewhere and see that there are promises that those who have received that faith will live like they've received this faith. Having received that faith, there's amazing blessings offered in the gospel. Grace and peace, knowledge of God, divine power giving us everything that we need to know Him, to be like Him, true knowledge of Him, Precious and magnificent promises to live on day after day in order that we might be partakers of the divine nature, in order that we might escape the corruption that's in the world. Because that's what's offered to us. That's what God has given to us. He's given us all of this in the gospel. Now for this very reason, Peter says, because God has given you all of these things, apply with all diligence to your faith, in your faith, moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. Now I realize that we haven't spent any time talking about the particulars of these seven qualities, but you can look at those. You have some idea what they're about. They aren't foreign to us. I feel even though we aren't very, we haven't talked about the qualities specifically, we probably still feel the weight I feel it even as I'm saying it. I feel the weight of failing to be as diligent as Peter is suggesting here. Be diligent diligent in adding these seven qualities. Because if they're ours, this is the great encouragement, if they're ours and they're increasing in our lives, and they will be if we're being diligent to add them, we will be useful and fruitful in the true knowledge of God. And we will have spiritual sight to see not only where we've been come from and where we've been saved from, but we'll be able to see where we're going. So that we won't stumble all along the way on all of the traps that are out there that Peter will go on to get to. Exactly what he's talking about in chapter 2, which is false prophets and wrong doctrines and heresies and other things that are slipping in. We'll have spiritual sight to see what we've been saved from, to see where we're going in order to guarantee that we will not stumble along the way and that we will finally one day enter into 
that glorious rest at that eternal entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's an absolute guarantee. A guarantee if we will apply and live upon all that God is for us in Jesus Christ based on his gospel.